Hello everyone and welcome to what is the 100th Scots Wayhay podcast and we are down in Leith at the fantastic Leith Depot. We wondered, we wanted to get someone, special guest, to uh, be the one at our 100th and we thought there'd be no one better than someone who shapes the musical tastes of the nation and that of course is Mr Vic Galway. Hello Vic. Hello, thank you very much for having me and I, I really do think of this as an honour uh, to be on your 100th podcast and very kind words as well, thank you. Well the last time we spoke um, it was about your book Songs of the Key of Fife, yeah. um, which was a great success, you mm-hmm. know, a, a fantastic book um, and now we're going to talk again about another book um, but this time Rip It Up and I think most people listening to this will have will know about Rip It Up because it's not just a book, it's an exhibition at the National Museum of Scotland and it was also a television programme. So mm-hmm. huge undertaking and you know your book is essential to this. So talk a little bit about how Rip It Up came about. Yeah, well um Stephen Allen is the curator of the exhibition. He's actually a scouser, but he's uh, married to an Edinburgh lass and he's been in Scotland for many years and brought up his uh, son here and so on. And he is, I think, I'm trying to get his title right, I think he's head of learning at the National Museum of Scotland. And he's just a massive music fan. He's a complete music nerd. And uh, I kept seeing him at gigs, festivals. He would go to a lot of the, the fence, home games stuff. He would go to Lost Map Nights. I'd see him at indie bands and, you know, shows and so on. So and he loves Camera Obscura. And, and he and I just kept bumping into each other and chatting at festivals and gigs and so on. And he's of the age that he... he um, one of his first favourite bands, one of the bands that he called his own, rather than copying his big brother or sister or whatever, was the Rosillos. He loves the Rosillos, and it was like one of his teenage bands. So he's really into punk, post-punk, that kind of era and onwards, and is an avid music fan. And he, he turned to me, he'd read songs in the key of Fife and really liked it, and that was, you know, very, very nice of him to say so. And uh, the, the National Museum of Scotland do these late nights when they have you know, a bunch of bands themed around an exhibition and some performance art and there's a crying baby in the background. It's all vanity. Um, yeah, um, and, um, you know, I would sometimes host, and I usually do host the, the lights in the in the museum in Chamber Street, so I kept bumping into um, Stephen at gigs at the lights. Um, he said nice things about songs in the key of Fife and then eventually he said, look, I'm looking to do this um, music exhibition if I can get it up and running. If you know, the high hygienes at the, at the museum will allow it. We've had the video game exhibition that they did, um, and that was a massive success. Maybe I'll be able to do a, a, a music, a pop music exhibition. If it comes about, if I get the green light, would you be up for doing the book, the accompanying book? And I, I was like, 100% yes. And I said, what are you looking to cover in the exhibition? And he went, the history of Scottish pop, everything. <laughs> and, and I was qu- obviously quite daunted by this, but I thought, well, the fact that he's asked me and the fact that he likes songs in the key of Fife and my radio shows and all of that stuff, I thought, well, I, I, I have to take up this challenge. So that's how it, it came about initially. And then that was about two, two and a half years ago that we were talking about this, and then it takes about that amount yeah, of time. Yeah, to, just to go through all the bureaucracy involved, get pitch it to the right people and so on. And then eventually, um, I'd, I'd already said yes to doing the book, but you have to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and all that. And eventually, I started writing it at the end of last year, sort of December last year. And initially, they wanted me to hand it in in February, two months, to write the history of Scottish pop. <laughs> I went, no. Uh, but I did um, sort of deliver it mid-April. Yeah. So even that, four, four months um, is... is, is it was fairly tight, and also it's quite a, a short word count as well. I mean, it's roughly fifty thousand words, which I mean, you, I mean, it's short enough though. Yeah. I mean, if you think of a normal novel being roughly a hundred thousand, yeah, I mean, fifty fifty thousand words for spanning from the nineteen fifties to the present day. I mean, I could have done with double or triple that word yeah. count to to just flesh things out a little bit more, but. I like a challenge, and I went for it, and, and here we go. But having said that, often, you know, these books which accompany 
exhibitions, they are really good and they, they, they work well with the exhibition, but they're usually fairly thin, you know, uh, direct and often quite dry. Um, and probably could be written in a couple of months when you can mm. imagine that time span. That's not what this is. You see it's a short word count, but it's a really comprehensive tour through this day of Scottish pop. And it's astonishing to think that that's how long you took to write it. Because it's not just the, the time span it covers, but it's the detail inside it. And I'm guessing having to check a lot of the details as well. Because the last thing you were saying before we started that, you know, we're all kind of music geeks, and there's few people as geeky as a music geek, and if they were to say, oh, well, actually, I think you'll find that this was this... Actually, I like, I, I hate to say it, but um, but it is inevitable. Uh, looking back at the book, even now, sort of six, seven months um, after I delivered it, there are a few a few little typos and errors in there, and I, I don't want to... You know, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not going to blame my editor, but and there's also there are two or three names that I really should have covered in the book that aren't in there, and I, I've forever, you know, apologetic to those people who I shan't name in case people get really upset. But there, are, there are two or three musicians or, or acts that should be in there that I missed out, and it's not because of any malice or because I wanted to ignore them. It's purely because I forgot. When you when you're dealing with this amount of information, some things slip through the net. The occasional album title gets um, you know mixed up or the release date is wrong. So I apologise. There aren't that many mistakes that I know of. There. There were two or three. There are two or three, and there are a couple of omissions. Um, but if you compare it to the exhibition itself, the radio series that we did, and the TV series, um, it's the most comprehensive of all four. Um, so it's and it's you know as I say, I would love to go into even more depth, and maybe I'll do a redux edition edition one day when I can double the word count, put in those acts I've for, forgotten in the first place correct any typos, that kind of stuff. Um, but as, as is, I'm really proud of it and the reaction's been good. Is a PhD thesis? Are over 100,000? Are they? Right, well that could be it. Re revisit that one day, yeah. yeah. Um, it's not, I think perhaps what people might expect it to be is just cr a chronology of, of the history of Scottish pop. But it isn't, um, it's structured in, in different ways, there's themes, um, there's, and that's why band you might not expect um, appear in the same chapters. Uh, I've written down um, Marillion, um, Finney Tribe, and I think the Blue Nile will appear in one chapter. Yeah. People, that but yeah. if you could tell us a little bit how you decided to structure the well um, and just going back to your previous question a little bit and, and, and statement and so on about it not being dry and when I was talking to the publisher and I'd like to give a big shout out to Leslie Taylor from the National Museum of Scotland uh, publishing wing who was my editor and the person I dealt with on a day to day basis when, when we were going through it all she was incredibly helpful and incredibly supportive and and when I came to her with ideas about how I wanted to do things, she said yes to all of them. I mean, you know what rock journalism and rock biog writing is, is like? There's a lot of sex, drugs and rock and roll. This is the National Museum of Scotland. And, um, you know, children and, and pe people of a of more gentle disposition might be reading. Um, so... You couldn't get down the Nick Kent through it No, no. Although there are there there is mention of, of, the, of occasional drug use yes. and there is, like, sort of alluding to, you know, the, the kind of swinging 60s or whatever era it would be. Um, you, you know, but I couldn't completely shoot from the hip. But at the same time, I think it's, it, it isn't as dry um, as perhaps some other uh, museum books because it's about music, it's about rock and roll, and it's the, it's the soundtrack to our lives. It's, it's also, you know, brings in fashion, culture, contemporary art, um, politics. You know, you can't be as dry about it as you might be writing about the Jacobites or, or whatever it may be, you know, not, not saying that that's not exciting stuff as well, of course it is, but I wanted it to jump off the page, that was my aim with Songs in the Key of Fife and with this book, was 
even if you don't know anything about the subject matter, even if you're not that interested in the subject matter, that hopefully you get to the end of a chapter and you're like, oh, can't wait to find out what, what goes on yeah, next. Yeah. I remember with songs in the key of five, Kenny Anderson, King Creasel, gave me the greatest compliment of all, which was when he'd finished a chapter, reading a chapter about himself, I got left a sort of cliffhanger, you know, what did Kenny do next? And he was going, what did I do next? <laughs> and, and, and Yeah, that's the action you expect from some pop stuff. But that's, but that's what you want. You want. I wanted people to, to feel kind of excited and... Uh, I suppose the short word count has one benefit in that it's a bit of a breakneck roller coaster ride. So, so once you get on the roller coaster, you, you you go straight straight through it all. But yes, in terms of the formatting of it and the ideas, I um, I mean we went through different ideas. Initially, there was going to be ten chapters and then three in between chapters or five in between chapters, and um, because they had the ability to access this great archive of photographs and images and so on. And, and also go and source images from elsewhere. So, I mean, I'm really pleased with the book because obviously you know, it's got my name on it and it's such an amazing thing to be involved in. But when you, when you leaf through it, there's all this great artwork and, and, and kind of photography and so on. It's, you know, it's a coffee table book plus. You know, it's, 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 it's a really juicy thing to have. Um, so anyway, we, we settled on the fact that we, we, we got to 10 chapters um, I'll, go, I'll, I'll read out the chapter yeah. titles if you like yeah. so there's an in- introduction from me setting out the stall and um, there's the acknowledgements and thanks and so on and then there are ten chapters which are all named after either songs or albums or lyrics or whatever uh, of Scottish artists and what I did was seven chronological chapters and three themed chapters so that's the way it's got to be yeah. name of a poet's song um, and that sort of that's the 1950s, the dawn of rock and roll, the 50s into the 60s, kind of spans right up to the sort of late 60s, just verging on the early 70s. Then chapter two is Pick Up the Pieces, named after the average white man song, and that goes through the kind of early, mid, bordering on late 70s. Then chapter three is Treasure, named after the Cocktail Twins album, um, and that's about record shops, it's about formats, it's about merchandising, t-shirts, posters, you know, um, yeah, just naming all the labels, all of them, as many as I could yeah, fit sure. in, and, and record shops, and, and, and the idea that, you know, things have gone from vinyl to cassette to CD to digital, kind of back to vinyl again, back to vinyl, yeah. um, and, and so that's what Treasure deals with, Big Gold Dream is um, chapter four, and that deals with um, the kind of post-punk in the late 70s into the early 80s uh, Glittering Prize is chapter 5 that deals with the slightly more I would say mainstream pop orientated stuff of the 80s yes. of which that's really when Scottish music almost came into its own you yeah. know in terms of the global impact it had that's not to say there weren't massive successes beforehand but um, that's when it really like I think you really immersed itself in people's consciousness. Uh, Upside Down is, is chapter six. That's about the sort of underbelly of the 80s, the, you know, the underground stuff, the Jesus and Mary Chain, the Cocteau Twins, all the punk and uh, post-punk and sort of more experimental music. Then chapter seven, In a Big Country, is um, about live music, live venues, festivals, um, that sort of the experience of going and soaking up live music and a little tour around you know the venues, the, yeah. the the famous venues that Scotland's produced, whether it be the, the Glasgow Apollo, the Barrowlands, and and then even going back to the the, the 60s, the you know um, Bungies and the uh, the Casbah and the Gamp and all these all these different venues that were in Edinburgh that had you know you have the Spencer Davis Group or the Who or the Animals or whatever passing through these venues, and so just a little nod to all of that. Chapter eight, bandwagon esque, is is that I suppose the late 80s going into 90s and I think I think that's the period when Scottish artists started making the decision to stay in Scotland yeah, yeah. rather than moving to London um, and also you know as you might imagine by the title bandwagon bandwagon-esque it, it sort of deals with the you know the coming of age of Scottish indie music and so on but it also covers mainstream stuff um, chapter 9 Take Me Out Franz Ferdinand's song that's almost like basically sort of the, the 2000s up to the present day and then the final chapter Throw the R Away is about 
um, Scottishness in a, in a kind of loose... I mean, is, is that not the hardest thing to write it's, about? Of course it is. And which is so what you do on, yeah. a, on a day and daily basis, weekly <laughs> basis. So. And, 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 and so it was in some way trying to weave a thread from the 50s to the present day as to what is Scottish pop? Yeah. Um, it, you know... Can it be defined? Can it be defined and all that sort of stuff? So, as I say, three themed chapters, seven chronological chapters. And, you know, and a breakneck pace it goes at to... So did you have the chapters written and then come up with the songs or the, 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 that were going to be the titles, or you know, how did that work? I sort of sketched out how I wanted to, sort of had to break it up. Yeah. Um, you know, because you get, you get to that point in the 80s and you realise there's just an absolute wealth of, of bands yeah. and, and it gets to the point when how much can I actually write about each yeah. one of them so I had to I just chopped them into chunks it's not to say there weren't lots of Scottish artists in the 50s and 60s there were and doing some investigation into this doing my research you realise how many beat, beat groups there were in the 60s you know the poor souls the senate the, the Athenians the and it goes on and on and so you have to pick kind of pick the ones that were yeah. successful or you know Dean Ford and the Gaylord, that Gaylords that turned it into Marmalade, and you know these kind of things. And I, I realised that I could probably do the fifties and most of the sixties in one chapter, yeah. whereas I needed a couple of chapters to do the eighties. So, and once I'd sort of divvied up roughly what era was going to be in each chapter, then I, I tried to choose a, a, a tune. Well, I guess that's what the book does. It gives you an overview. It says, "Here's." Really thorough overview as you will get. What, do you, what are you interested in? Go and find out about it. Yeah. You know, so you think, well, uh, I didn't really know Scotland had a dance music scene. Yeah. And then people go and find out that there's all these. Oh yeah. Bands. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, um, you know, you, you looking at the the eighties and into the nineties, all the sort of um, kind of quite hard dance. You know, Mallorca um, uh, Mal- uh, Lee and all these guys were like, you know, they're still DJing and they, they were selling, they were getting um, tracks into the charts. Yeah. Uh, you know, TTF yeah, and all absolutely. these. You know, people might, some people might think it's a bit cheesy or whatever, but these, they were having hits and huge. and they were huge and they you know, and people don't necessarily put two and two together. And then you mentioned them earlier on, Finney Tribe, you know, really pioneering band, um, the Shaman. I mean, people forget the Shaman. Yeah. were Scottish for a start and, and they went to number one exactly. and, you know, and they had huge hits um, and countless others nowadays if you look at electronic music you know I mentioned Calvin Harris he's the biggest pop star in the world ten years ago he was stacking shelves in Dumfries and M&S now he's well he, he was dating Taylor Swift and so on I mean it's nuts yeah. um, but you know he's at the cutting edge of very commercial EDM but then you've got churches and so on. And then on the underground, Lucky Me, Numbers, these are collectives. You know, I mentioned Hudson Mohawk and Rusty and people like that in the book. Hudson Mohawk makes, makes beats for Drake and Kanye West. These are the biggest stars in the world. And Hudson Mohawk is Ross Birchard from Glasgow. You know what I mean? And people don't necessarily think that we're making that kind of music when we are. I'm making that kind of influence. I yeah. mean, I think the same thing with... Um uh, Gary Clark from Barry Wilson who went over and then started writing huge hits for American, you know, stars. Yeah, like yeah. Um, I'd like to uh, go back to the, the punk time because that seemed to shape a lot of what King Scott would become because then you had postcard after that and uh, fire and all of these uh, labels. Because what really interests me coming from Glasgow is Glasgow in the punk scene because it didn't really happen at the time. It was a very much an Edinburgh and or Gremlin, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Thing. Well, that, that's it. I mean, look, uh, you've got to remember after the Bill Grundy show and the Sex Pistols swearing on TV, a lot of people didn't want to have punk in their uh, in their back garden and they, and they wanted to sort of ban it and so on. But um, I interviewed John Lydon um, a year and a half ago or something like that and um, thankfully got on well with him. Um, but he, lo- he he loved it and he recounted, he says, I remember it, he says, what was it, the, the little provost in Glasgow said, we've got enough hooligans up here without him importing them from south of the border and uh, and I was and, and he burst out laughing telling me that and he thought it was the greatest thing but 
that's that's what he said publicly, you know. Um, and so I think it was after um, City Hall's gig with the Stranglers uh, played, and the audience, yeah. some of the audience ripped up the seats, and so they they got banned, and and then there was a, like. There was also a bit of a cultural stagnation. I mean, I think Glasgow was dirty denim and uh, blues rock, and and, and there's no, pub, pub rock, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. But um, there, there was a bit of a cultural awakening at that point, just across the world, and it was kind of spearheaded by New York and by London and Manchester, and eventually by Edinburgh and Glasgow. But yeah, initially punk was kind of banned, and so people had to go. And Play in Silver Thread in the bungalow uh, bar in uh, Paisley. Paisley, yeah, Paisley was a great place for that. You could go if you were in Glasgow. And similarly, it strikes me in the late 80s, early 90s when a lot of clubs were being um, closing early and there was lots of council attention and trying to check what people were doing in these clubs and there would be buses going out to salt courts and to you know air and all these places. They would have massive bays because they didn't have the same yeah. Yeah, well, and and um, by the way, I would say the same about um, Edinburgh, the city of Edinburgh Council. I'm not going to use this podcast to make some massive political point, but we're sitting in the Leith Depot right now, and um, we're looking at a venue which is right next to a recording studio and countless wee in, uh, industries and, and businesses here, and it's going to be knocked down or potentially changed into luxury student accommodation and blah 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 it's like when are the city councils in Edinburgh Glasgow and anywhere else for that matter around the world going to realise the importance of the culture that's on their doorstep people come to um, are moving I live in Leith and people are moving to Leith because of its cultural value not because there's a supermarket near their door or because there's luxury student accommodation there they're moving here because there are great pubs and clubs and, and and people and artists and and you know you look at the west end of Glasgow or whatever it is you, you want the council to understand that what's what's there why why is Scotland pioneering in in, in music and art and theater and culture in general is because there are areas where it survives and if you destroy all those areas we will not have the same art and culture so it's it's uh, you know it's nothing in in many ways nothing has changed you know and it's now down to the property developers anyway there you go here ended the lesson <laughs> i completely agree with all of that and it is interesting it's funny to me though that uh, they thought that a musical movement would make Glasgow for the 70s in the violent and all the Yes, right. Well, that's it. That's it. And, you know, I mean, you had the, the, the gangs over there anyway. And just in, in general, you know, if you, if you have downtrodden, impoverished, you know, areas of any part of the world, there's going to be crime and violence and so on. And, and, and parts of Scotland were no different. And obviously, you know, Glasgow being one of them. So the fact that, yeah, punk was going to make them more violent, if, if anything, it was... You know, yes, there were some violence at punk gigs in in Edinburgh and Glasgow and elsewhere, no doubt. But um, in some ways, when young kids have a focus for their rage, you know, um, you put it into art and into clothing and fashion and writing fanzines and you know and all that sort of stuff, um, writing lyrics, songs, storytelling, poetry, whatever it may be, it gets them off the streets. It stops them. And punching each other in the face, you know. So um, I don't know. I and actually, I think there's a turning point, end of the 70s into the 80s. I think Scotland, in a in a weird way, starts to become a bit, little bit more hopeful, and and that's reflected in in its, you could say, cultural renaissance, yeah, I perhaps. Think so. And I think in that sense, I'm fascinated by it as well. And I was fairly young when it was happening, but. Um, these are the books I go back to. One of the you know, all of the ones of streaming, I should say. And I uh, read heavily into it because it seems like a very zero for, for culture, not just music, for culture. You know, a lot of the world was done away with. I think people, and unfortunately, a lot of great bands were maybe overlooked for that reason. They were still making great music and it was not being punk, but it seemed like it always had to happen for the next yeah, I mean, uh, look, um, I, uh, you know, when I was younger, I was a bit of a year zero punk, post punk. That's it. Stuff before that's 
boring old fart music. But actually, I'm, I'm not of that opinion anymore. Um, I love the, the, the beat stuff, and I love, you know, I mean, like... I'm not the most knowledgeable um, person about prog rock, but I, I love good prog rock now. I like Van de Graaff Generator and I like Hawkwind yeah. and you know. Uh, no, and I, I'm not I'm not one of those people at all. And I, I think we need to. There there are certain tastemakers that run the establishment now in terms of the media. And for them, year zero was was punk and post punk and, and synth pop and so on, and so they try and write prog and blues rock and you know all of these things that happened in this folk rock and so on out of the history books. They were big, they were popular, and they were massively popular in Scotland as well. What was really interesting to me about the beginning of the book was the stories like what was happening in Glasgow at the time. The kind of um, importance of music being played in pubs and people turning up and, and you know playing together in pubs. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things I got from it was returning to records which I loved when I was younger. And I forgot about. For me, it was Don Stevie Jackson. Yeah. Astonishing record. Yeah, yeah. All sorts of reasons. It's an incredible record. Mm. Um, was there similar for you? Was there things that you revisited because you had? Yeah, and and things. Uh, well, that's a good that's a good example as well. And diving into the associates again, and um, and also I wanted to give mentions to to bands that I saw and that was into like Dog Faced Hermans and things like that. They were John Peel favourites. Totally insane bands that um, like were really unique. So I you know I, I was in America um, last year and I ended up I found a Dog Faced Hermans seven inch in a in a record shop somewhere. Uh, but yeah, it was. Of course, finding and digging into all the 60s stuff and discovering a lot of that for the first time and then going through all of these, um, you know, and also reappraising things as well. I mean, I might not have been into some of the blue-eyed soul yeah. stuff in the 80s, but actually, you listen back to those records and a lot of them are really good. A lot of them sound a bit dated and not that good, but, um, you know, and... Broadcasting. When I started on Radio One and and doing BBC stuff in Scotland in 1999, um, I it changed my life in so many different ways. One of the ways was most people are like, I love it, I hate it. When it comes to music or art in general, film, whatever, but say music, I love that or I hate it, and there's no grey area. Suddenly, when you're broadcasting and you're appraising and reappraising people's work, they're sending you their their hard toil recorded. Yeah. Uh, you can't just go, that shite. You know, you've got to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, the person's, you know, learn how to play the instrument, learn how to craft a song of some description, put their effort, their personal effort and time into it, and then had the confidence, the courage to record it and try and send it and get it played on the radio. I mean, it's such, everyone's insecure, but putting your music out there for someone to just, like, you know, palm it off and just go, nah, it's rubbish. I, I think that's so unfair. So it really, it made me, like, it opened my mind to, yeah. to, to being more tolerant and, and that's what Peel did. That was the yeah. great thing about Peel's show. Yeah. Right? He would play. I'm sure there were records that he pr probably didn't even like occasionally that he would play, but he played them because they needed a platform. And I realised that there actually now there is a small amount of stuff that I really like, and there's a small amount of stuff that I really yeah. hate, and a massive, massive grey area in between. So um, yeah. That's um, it's it's something that I've 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 come across and realised, and so reappraising a lot of the records and the artists from the 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 80s that perhaps weren't my cup of tea at yeah. the time. When we made the four-part radio series for the BBC, um, which was again in a slightly different format from the book and the exhibition and the TV thing, but one of the best um, interviewees was Tommy Cunningham from uh, Wet Wet Wet. He's an absolute star. He was really funny. He had great anecdotes, great stories. He was courteous and decent. And you've got to remember that they started off as a kind of wannabe kind of punk new wave band doing Clash and magazine covers, you know. Um, then it was just when they got their new singer at the time, Marty Pello, that, that um, 
they just realised he can't he can't sing these songs, and we've we've got to kind of play to our strengths, which was to be more commercial sounding and more pop, and so they ended up going in that direction. And they came out of punk at punk like everyone else. And did. I remember seeing them on something like FSD or some sort yeah. show, and it was like, here's this new band that are interested by Willie Nelson and they're kind of, I think they recorded an album I think over in Memphis. They did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they've been, they were being pushed in a certain way until someone at a record company went, yeah, hang on. Hang on, this guy's got a cheeky wee smile and a glint in his eye. And if we, yeah, and can sing, yeah, and the own the band can play, and we just polish it up a little bit. And and hey presto, millions of screaming girls are chasing them down the street. And um, and Tommy was like, I remember asking him about it and saying, was there a, a point when you were like selling millions of records, but going, I wish we had critical acclaim. And he said, yes. We did wish we had critical acclaim. We did want the enemy and everyone else to tell everyone how cool we were. But we were quite happy with the Screaming Girls and the billions of record sales. And, 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 and you know what? I think, you know, people... People who listen to music can afford to have that kind of yes. attitude when you're actually in a making yeah. and, and I don't care what anyone says, though. Bands that have critical acclaim and everyone's patting them on the back and saying how great they are, but they sell three records. All they want to do is sell millions of records and have screaming girls chasing down the streets or whatever, screaming boys chasing down the streets, their girls. But, you know, um, it's the grass is always greener. You just want that critical acclaim, but you also want to be a success. I think an interesting band in that uh, effect are Simple Minds. Because if you only use Simple Minds from Belfast Child, Mandela Day, all that, the big stadium sound, and people I knew did, but I've known them from their earlier, you know, German influenced electronic and stuff, which is a still amazing record. Yeah. And then go and listen to this stuff. This yeah. is incredible. Even if you don't like that later stuff. Uh, and then they kind of almost return to that. Yeah. Because these bands are still making music. Yeah, and I have to say, um, I, I just the other day, I was, I was someone was asking me, oh, what, what kind of? In fact, it was last night. I went to see a band, and I was I'm chatting to the guys afterwards, and we we're having a beer and just discussing music and stuff. And, and they were kind of like, oh, kind of looking for new things to listen to. And I said, you know, I trotted out some new stuff that they might be interested in listening yeah. to. But I also said. Go and dig out the first four or five albums by Simple Minds, and and they sort of looked at me like thinking, "Don't you forget about me?" Yeah. Whatever, like, like, come on. And I was like, "No, go and dig out those first, the first four especially, maybe even first five. You know, they're astonishing, pioneering, interesting sounding records. As you mentioned, the German uh, Krautrock kind of cosmic music from the seventies is a big influence. Um, the, the discovery of the synthesizer as a lead instrument." Um, just different kinds of song formats, you know. They they obviously discovered their their love and skill of uh, at writing pop, but they were into experimental music. And there's a period when they're combining the two to great effect, and and those records still sound good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really interested in the chapters about the labels, the shops, the venues, the things that we all, no matter what tastes, we interact with. Mm -hmm. Did, was it important to have them? Yeah, and again, um, I, it was one of these things I wanted to mention every shop that's, <laughs> that's ever stood and sold records in Scotland and every record label. And, and I, 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 you just can't. And yeah, I, I, go at it. I, try, I, try, I tried my best, yeah. you know. It's like everything, you know, in the book. I've, I've tried to fit the sort of depth of information in there but still make it readable I mean I hope I hope I managed to get the balance right I mean you, d you don't want just lists but at the same time if you are doing something which says the story of Scottish pop on the outside of it then you want to try and represent as much as possible and I know that some of the shops have been in like a few of them have been in touch on Twitter or whatever and said thanks for the mention and so on um, but yeah it's, it's really important I grew up I was born abroad, but I grew up um, near St Andrews, and so buying records initially would have been Joe Menzies, and, and then there was a wee shop in St Andrews that we used to go to called Tracks, and then when my mum would allow me to get on the bus and go to uh, Dundee, that's where you could go to Groucho's and Chalmers and Joy, and, and actually, I mean, it was a treasure trove. These, these shops were like... I know it, it may seem to anyone listening um, who's of a certain age and much younger than me, and they're like, what's he on about <laughs> reminiscing about shops? But without the internet and without the ability to just buy anything or stream anything at the click of a button, you had to do your research and you had to go looking for things. 
but when you found a good shop like a Chalmers and Joy like a, uh, a Groucho's in Dundee they had concert tickets they had posters patches t-shirts scarves badges all of that stuff and tons and tons and tons of vinyl and cassettes um, and you know this is pre-CD even and you know if I had whatever pocket money I had um, which wasn't always a lot but it, when I had anything it went on yeah. records and yeah. badges so I can remember the, the, a typical trip to Dundee would mean me getting on the, the bus with my friend James now James Yorkston singer-songwriter and um, we would get on the bus and it would take us through St Andrews and then over the Tay Bridge and so on and to Dundee we'd get off we'd have a wander around town try not to get our heads kicked in by the casuals because uh, we were the weirdos with our Doc Martens on and stuff um, and then try maybe be able to afford a 7 inch or yeah. 2 and maybe or maybe an album depending on how you, yeah and, and, and maybe a, like a wimpy burger or whatever we were on at that time and then you know spend a, a, an afternoon get on the bus back and you'd pour over the liner notes or whatever and it was you couldn't wait to get home and stick that Clash 7-inch or whatever it is that I'd bought on, on the turntable and listen to the B-side and so on. I mean, it seems ridiculous when everything is so immediate now, but I, it's, it was really important um, to me and I know to so many others. I think you, know, you were talking about the echo chamber and how that's important, that you're not just hearing the same things that everyone in your chamber or circle is hearing because that's all you're hearing about, if you like. What was great about that for me was I would go into town and the outskirts of Glasgow and come back with Stevie Wonder double album, you know, or something that I never meant to go in and buy, but we fucking throw it and go, oh, this looks quite good, or this looks quite good. And it would help your eclecticism and your musical taste. Yeah. Yeah. I think most music fans, I certainly was like this, I was quite tribal when I first started, yeah. you know, I mean, it was like, it was Adam and the Ants, that was it, that's all I was into, and then it was, alright, and Madness, alright, and then the specials, and then we got into punk, and then punk, it was just punk, and then we got into reggae, and then before you know it, the doors are blown off, and you're looking for hip-hop, you're looking for indie music, goth, um, eventually electronic music, and so on as well, and going into these shops... You'd, you'd flick through the racks and you'd find or you'd see things and like the cover would entice you and you're like what the hell is this and uh, if you were brave enough you might ask them to play a bit of it yeah. in the shop or something like that sometimes you just took a gamble yeah absolutely the, 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 the cover <laughs> looks doesn't pay off no yeah. oh, no absolutely I've got a few things because I try not to chuck away um, records so I've got um, I mean okay I'm lucky enough to get sent a lot of music and have been for the last 20 years or whatever but um, I keep as much as I possibly can especially things that I've bought um, over the years and, and so I'm like ah, I remember buying that and hating it at the time and I quite like it now yeah you know? yeah, yeah. Richard Jones yeah. the album for me was like that oh I've never even heard that oh yeah yeah, yeah. I can't remember what it's called now but I'll I interviewed um, Richard Jobson and Claire Grogan and Faye Fife at the oh, right. at the museum last last week, and it was fantastic. I mean, they're all kind of heroes to me, and um, it was sold out. It was about three hundred people there or so, and it was a great atmosphere. And we talked. We ended up talking for about an hour and forty minutes. We got questions from the audience. It was like a sort of overview of the time, but also we went into specifics with each of them, and they couldn't have been nicer. And it was a really really nice generous evening of chat uh, and I just steered the ship and let them, them chat away we could have done a one on one with any of the three of them you know but again these are artists who are still going still playing um, I would see the skins in the ABC2 actually it was sold out Mocked, you know, yeah. incredible. Similarly, with Hipsway, you because yep. you think Hipsway was small ish band in the mid 80s, man, they had a lot of fans that are still fans. Oh, there. totally, yeah. There's a record that, you know, I, pr- I probably, not, if not sneered at, but certainly just, well, that's not my thing. Um, the Honey Thief, when you hear that now, it's really funky. I mean, it's properly good, you know. Um, it's got that kind of production of the time, but it's, it's great, you know, and. Um, yeah, th- there you go. They're, these artists are all playing their, you know, either reforming and doing it again or have never kind of stopped. Yeah, they've kept on going. Yeah. I've seen the Zillows over the years many times. So yeah. Well, they're great, yeah. Um, we'll talk about um, the to record shops and things like that, but these days, 
it's, it's online, um, and actually what you're saying is if you're looking, when, when your musical tastes explode and you think, oh, I want to try electronic, it's never been easier to do that side of things, to go and find stuff. How, how do you view the way that music business in that sense is going? We're in a, a crooks um, period of, of history when it comes to everything now. I mean, when it comes to politics or whatever, I mean, God knows what's going on in the world. But yeah, finding vinyl might not be a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's the least of our worries. But yes, in terms of streaming and music consumption and so on, it's, it's completely different now. And I'm, I'm not a kind of doom and gloom merchant when it comes to uh, oh it's not as good as it was in my day I do think I mean there was me glorifying the the, the, the art of record shopping or the, the act of it if not the art of it um, and I think I think there's I think there's something slightly sad in the fact that people won't ever have that, that mystery that we had and because that mystery um, it generates anticipation and it generates excitement and you know if my dad took us down like my brother and I down to London for like you know a, a weekend or whatever to visit my grandparents who lived there for a wee while um, I was at that age when I was able to go to like a you know Virgin Records or whatever it would be on Oxford Street and the just the, the supplies they had, you know, yeah. Dad, Dad, can you lend me a tenner, you yeah. know, or whatever, yeah, there you go. And then I'd be able to get a couple of really, like, um, albums I'd, I'd wanted for years and not been able to get in Scotland, in Fife or whatever. But, and now, you, it's, you know, th that, that anticipation and excitement's gone. So I do think that's slightly sad, but I think what's going to happen is, or it's yet to really present itself, I think there's going to be a new kind of music fan and a new kind of music consumer in a way uh, if you've got access to seven decades of pop and rock that's going to do something to young minds in a positive way as well as a negative way I think it's going to I think I'd like to think that um, young people and, and people who consume vast amounts of music are going to come out with something pretty amazing yeah. soon um, we've maybe not seen it yet because I think everyone's getting their heads around um, the internet and how how you do it yeah. but um, yeah it's, it's completely different um, I think that's why you have these slightly retro ideas of going back and buying vinyl and obsessing about record shops and so on but I also think how how can it be a bad thing if you've got access to all the good music yeah, at the, I mean you know you know the, the Sex Pistols would cover No Fun by the Stooges I would have to find No Fun and it would take me ages to find it because John Peel wouldn't be playing it and um, you, you know you'd have to find the record and okay John Menzies don't yeah. stock the Stooges no. first album so it would, it would be a, a, now Oh, Vic Galloway mentioned the Stooges on um, Radio Scotland last night. Who are they? Click. Oh, downloaded their entire back catalogue. Yeah. I mean, that's got. In, in some ways, that's got to be an amazing thing. And, and so, uh, streaming is yet to even itself out. And I'm worried about how the artists themselves are compensated. But I think eventually they're going to get that kind of. Uh, recompense right for the people but they, they better do it soon because people don't mind going out and spending 30, 40, 50 quid in a pub getting pissed on a Friday night but they're, I've heard people saying 7.99 for all the music yeah. you know 7.99 for a, a subscription to Spotify or whatever it may be for all the music, for all the music <laughs> or, or thereabouts you know um, you know that's a bit steep I'm like you know, that's not even two pints nowadays, eight quid, you know what I mean? And, then some, and so um, I do think people have to re dig deep and put their hands in their pockets for art again. Uh, art isn't free. Um, that's, that's what worries me about the, uh, the internet is because everyone's got so used to just clicking on YouTube or whatever it is and finding any song they want. And, uh, and they actually resent paying for it. Um, I think people are a bit more willing to pay for live music, which is fine. But I think recorded music, they, they need to reimburse people. It costs money to um, record. To, well, and it's time, it's effort, learning your, in, your instrument, learning your craft, uh, learning how to record. Even if you are doing home recordings on a laptop, the laptops aren't free. 
you know, yeah. you, you've got an expensive one opposite opposite me. That costs a couple of thousand pounds. Yeah. That thing. You know, where does that come from? You don't get that I on a. But you know, you can't you can't get one of them on a paper round no, when you're no. a teenager. You know, you've got to have rich parents, or you've got to be lucky in some way. Yeah. You know, um, and so. People need to be reimbursed somehow. If if you want, if you want, if, if you're a working class m- musician and you want to forge your way in the world, you need to get paid every now and again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know. um, so that's my worry. Where but, does radio fit into this thing? Because I think at the moment, particularly BBC Radio Scotland, you think what's the most popular yourself, Roddy Hart Show and Nicola Main Show. And yeah, yeah. Fantastic radio shows, some of the best music shows we've got. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, thank so you very we're, much. We're, we're actually, that, to me, that's a really healthy situation, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, I have no idea what the future of Radio Scotland is going to be, but I really hope I can play a part in it. I love doing the programmes for the BBC and I love for Radio Scotland. I love doing occasional stints on Six Music and obviously I was on Radio 1 for years as well. It's been an absolute pleasure and I want that to continue. I mean, I can, I, I can only hope, I'm in my mid-40s now, I can only hope that I can still do it in 10 years, 20 years, possibly even 30 years' time. I mean... You know, do do a kind of John Peely type thing and keep keep going because I I still have the enthusiasm and the the, the, the hunger, and I still I mean you hear bands and you hear music that you, shall we say is disappointing occasionally. Ah, they they could be good or they could be better than they are. They just need a little bit more originality thrown in there or whatever. But when I hear that thing that jumps out, no matter what genre, and it's just like oh these guys are onto something. Wow, this is exciting. I still get that buzz. And I think it's one of the few places where people like that can get their music heard by a wider audience. Yeah. A wider audience that maybe don't go to gigs or aren't buying you know, music online or even maybe don't listen to Spotify, but they still make, you know... Well, and the thing is, weirdly enough, radio hit its um, highest listening, global listening figures in 2017. I mean, it's never been more popular across... You know, that, that, I mean, that will include speech radio and talk radio and all the rest of the news and yada, yada, yada. But um, it's never been more popular. And I think, actually, even though Buggles sang Video Killed the Radio Start, it didn't. And, uh, <laughs> Video's pretty much gone. Yeah, still yeah, yeah. Radio and the internet hasn't killed um, radio either. In fact, if you look at catch up, listen again, you know, all of these kind of non-linear uh, ways of consuming music and so on and, and art and, and culture. Radio pioneered. Is the, I, the iPlayer was radio before TV, remember? And um, and all those different forms of, whether it be Netflix or, you know, all these different kind of online platforms, it was radio that pioneered all of that stuff and podcasting like, you, like you're doing right now. Um, I believe... I believe in radio because you can get more... I, I'm into content over style, in a way. I love style as well, but I I prefer content. And and TV and, and, and sort of visual representation, people are often attracted to the hunky guy ripped with his abs or the, the sexy girl with her hot pants or whatever, whereas... On radio, you're, you're listening to the music, you're listening to the tune, the beat, the you know the lyrics, whatever. Again, with politics, I think you know uh, there are TV programs that try their best to cover politics, but listen to BBC Radio Four or BBC Radio Scotland, you hear far more in-depth analysis and far better, um, you know, kind of interviews and so on. Especially, especially if you're kind of. You know, in the evening, I mean, you, you, the moral maze. Check that program out. It's absolutely mind blowing. I mean, the sort of discussions they have on there, and um, and uh, so I'm a I'm a great believer in radio, and it still survives because people listen to it when they're cooking or doing something else, driving, obviously, and it's mainlined to your your brain via your ears. And uh, while people want to multitask then um, that's one way in which you can do it, is listen to the radio. And also, when it comes to music, I mean, I would say this because I am one of them in a way, but I believe in the selector, the curator. Yes, absolutely. I've heard, I've overheard someone say, some some young, one of the young team somewhere <laughs> said, um, I am the best DJ that I know. 
I mean, why would I listen to the radio? Why would I go to a club? I'm the best DJ that I know. I think that's sad. That means you've closed your mind off to someone else's taste in music or someone else's selection of music. I, I want to listen to Mark Riley or um, Giles Peterson or uh, Roddy Hart or Nicola Mean to hear what they come out with. Because, uh, you know, some of it I won't like, lots of it I will. And also, I'll be introduced to something I've never heard before or I haven't heard for a while. And I just, I love that. And I, I don't care how good your algorithm is, you know, I, I still believe in. You know, people making mixtapes and and putting together compilations and and just going. I saw this band the other day. They're a bit random. You've not maybe not heard this kind of stuff before, uh, but check this out. Bang! Mind blown. You know? I think people still want to have people who see curators that they trust. They trust their taste. They trust. And um, just like you know, going back to John Peel or to Black or whoever yeah. it was, you think. I might not like everything, but you know what? I like most of it because I like what they do. I John Peel would play lots of African music and lots of reggae and, and you know, Bangra and all sorts of stuff. Now, I remember when I was a teenager, I was like, yeah, yeah, go on, let's hear the next fall record yeah, or whatever yeah. it was. Let's, let's hear that indie band that I'm into at the moment when I was a bit more tribal. But guess what? All of that reggae and Bangra and African music and so went in. And now, in many ways, when I'm listening to music on my own, having heard a million different incarnations of indie rock and so on, I will probably go and listen to African music and reggae and Bangra and get into South American music, jazz. You know, if you've got an inquisitive musical mind, um, you, you go out and find different kinds of sounds and textures. And I would, I would put John Peel right up there, alongside friends and family and all sorts of other people that open my mind in different ways to music. But... Um, if, if I hadn't, if John Peel had just played two, three hours of solid punk or post-punk or indie, I might not have had or have the, the inquisitive mind that I've got today. These people are important, absolutely. Yeah. And I would have to say, you're one of those people. Oh, that's very nice of you. I mean, I try my best. I, you know, I'm sure Roddy and Nicola and everyone would say the same things. I would love to have more... You know more hours on the radio. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'd lo- I'd love to have three, four, you know, shows a week to to be able to play something. You know, if you like a single, make it single of the week and and play it three or four times that week. If you like an album, play four tracks from it a week. You know, and so people can dig in. Give a much wider spread of music, you know, well-known stuff, stuff from history and brand new stuff, local stuff, international stuff. I think it's important to put Scottish artists next to international artists as well, just to show, one, how good they are and how they stand up, and also just contextualise what's going on in the world. You know, if someone's reading about an artist from New York and they will want to hear them, well, you know, let's say The Strokes, and so you play The Strokes and then you play you know, Catholic action or something yeah. next to them, you realise, well, you know what, Catholic action are every bit as good as them. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, you know? sure. Well, I think that's the perfect place to finish. So, Vic, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Not at all. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Alistair. I will be back soon for our podcast 101 uh, with someone uh, completely different. Cheers.